welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. standing for the reading of God's word. We're reading selections from Luke, pardon me, Matthew, uh, chapter 27, beginning at verse 45 and ending at 54, some selections from that sweep of scripture describing Good Friday. Let us together hear the word of God. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 50. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. This is God's holy word. May its eternal truth break upon our hearts as never before. Father, we ask that as we come in a service like this dedicated in a holy hour of meditation upon the greatness of the sacrifice of your Son, that we miss not one dimension of how he died, why he died, and the transformation that happened that day among the lives we'll study. May that transformation be ours as we come to know the risen Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. My name is Joe Persh. It's my honor to be senior pastor here at Valley Forest. I welcome you if you're visiting with us. We gather every Passion Week to meditate upon the sacrifice of our Lord on Good Friday before we exalt in the resurrection of our Lord on Resurrection Day. We're glad you're with us. We have been in a series entitled What We Saw, Eyewitnesses of the Cross. We've been studying the lives of the men and women who were near the crucifixion experience, who were caught up in the story of the cross itself. In the series, we've studied people that were familiar to us, like Mary, the mother of Jesus, and her experience at the foot of the cross. The familiar, like Mary. Then there were the unfamiliar, like Simon of Cyrene, whose only moment in Scripture comes when he is called by the Romans into service to carry the crossbar of Christ up the long road to Calvary. 
Well, tonight we're going to study not a familiar figure, not an unfamiliar figure, one that's known, but I would call him the unlikely. Unlikely to come to faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, maybe the most unlikely of all the people who were there on crucifixion day. The centurion who ordered the driving of the nails into the body of our Savior. If you have ever believed in your life that someone is too far gone into evil to ever experience redemption, tonight's story is for you. Maybe that person is you in your own mind. Tonight's story is for you. It's a story about one man who over the events of one day became eternally changed. We're going to look tonight at who he saw on that cross and through the events of that day. We're going to look also at what this centurion and the guard around him experienced in the awe-filled moments after Christ gave up his spirit. And the earth shook. And then finally, we're going to take you into what he believed. What he, in my humble opinion as a preacher of God's word, came to know and believe about the one who had been crucified before him at his own hands. And I believe it was an eternity-changing moment for that man. The centurion, how he saw the cross and what it did in his life. First of all, let's take a look at who the centurion saw all through that day we know as Good Friday. The centurion saw simply a miraculous man. He encountered someone unlike anyone he had ever met or witnessed in life. You need to understand that the centurion was there throughout that bloody Friday. From the early morning trial of Jesus at Pilate's Praetorium, all the way until the darkening of the sun in the noon hour and through 3 p.m. when Christ finally physically gave up his spirit. This man watched Christ betrayed, watched Christ tried, watched Christ condemned, watched Christ mocked, watched Christ tortured at his own hand and crucified at his own hands. He was quite possibly the one man who was the one eyewitness to everything that happened that bloody Friday. He was there through all the frames in the story. A little bit about him. The Bible calls him a centurion. We understand that the word century, the Latin talks about 100. A centurion was a Roman officer who was charged with the leadership of 100 men. He was assigned, we know, to what was known as the Antonian Battalion. The Romans had held Jerusalem under the armed forces of a battalion of 600 elite Roman soldiers. They were in the, the Antonium Fortress, the Fortress of Antonia. They're high atop the, the Mount of Jerusalem and in the midst of the city, nearby the temple. He was part of that 600-man force, and he commanded 100 men within it. It is very probable that he was assigned in the early morning of that bloody Friday to stand alongside Jesus at guard from the moment Jesus was brought into the presence of Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, who was the supreme commander of that military force. Early in the morning, 5 a.m. or maybe even earlier, the Jews had brought Jesus through their 
from their sham trials into the courtyard of Pilate. Pilate had been awakened by the Jews, and they demanded that Pilate hear and try Jesus and condemn him to death. And certainly Pilate would have called a guard of his own to come and take charge of this prisoner from the hands of the Jews and to stand at guard alongside him. So this centurion appears to have been assigned from the early morning to stand trial. So from the early morning onward, every scene was his. He saw everything. He heard everything. Likely, he and the four others were assigned together. The four others, who are they? They're also mentioned in the story, those who kept watch over Jesus. A crucifixion detachment was led by an officer, and then there were four other soldiers who handled the various grisly and and laborious duties of crucifying a man. And they stood guard at the foot of each cross until the man died. So this is the background you must understand for the story I'm going to tell you. They saw and heard everything that happened that day, particularly the centurion. But they also saw and heard him. Don't miss this. It was just another day with just another prisoner and leading to just another crucifixion. But the man that they would be around would begin to change their hearts and minds, especially the centurion. Over the hours of that day, they would begin by being indifferent to Christ, just another prisoner, just another trial. And then they would begin to wonder at Christ as he endured what they would see him endure. And then finally, they would wonder about him. Who is this man and what kind of man would he be? So let me give you just a rendition from one author of what that day was like for the centurion and the soldiers. Listen as I read. Because this particular officer was with those guarding Jesus, it appears he is the very one who had been given charge of overseeing and carrying out the crucifixion of Christ, and probably the crucifixion of the two thieves as well. He and his men were close eyewitnesses to everything that had happened since Jesus was taken to the praetorium and his trial before Pilate in the early morning. They had personally kept him under guard from that point on. They had seen how Jesus held his silence while his enemies, the crowds of the Jews, hurled accusations at him. He claimed to be the king of the Jews. He called himself the son of God. They heard all the accusations as his enemies hurled them across the courtyard. These same soldiers had then strapped Jesus to a post for the Roman scourging and watched while he suffered even that horrific beating with quiet grace and majesty. They themselves had mercilessly then taunted him, dressing him in a faded soldier's tunic, pretending it was a royal robe, parading him out before all 600 of the Praetorian Guard and the guard of the fortress. All of them joined along with the four soldiers and the centurion at taunting Christ. They had battered his head with a reed that they had placed in his hands as a mock scepter. These very same soldiers had also woven a crown of cruel thorns and smashed it into the skin of his scalp. Perhaps these four and the centurion himself had joined in spitting on Christ and taunting him and mistreating him in every conceivable fashion, and they had seen him endure all these tortures without cursing or threatening any of his tormentors. And perhaps they began 
to be a bit amazed. In all likelihood, these soldiers heard with their own ears when Pilate repeatedly had declared Christ's innocence, they knew very well that he was guilty of no crime that made him a threat to Rome's interests. They must have been utterly amazed from that point in the mid-morning onward as Christ was pronounced innocent but condemned to crucifixion anyway. They must have been utterly amazed about how different this man began to be from the typical criminal whom they had crucified. He fit no category they had ever seen in the hundreds of crucifixions they had probably superintended. But they were hardened men and they had showed him no mercy. They were professional soldiers, trained to follow orders. And so they had led Jesus to the hill of Calvary, and they had dutifully nailed Christ's hands and feet to the cross. They had set the cross upright and dropped it into the hole dug for it, dislocating the shoulders of the Savior and beginning the hours of long physical and mental torment that crucifixion would bring. And then... They had sat down to watch him die. But Christ's death would be unlike any death by crucifixion they had ever witnessed. Because he was unlike any man they'd ever executed. They had been amazed at his innocence, but his condemnation to crucifixion anyway. They'd been stunned at his quiet humility and refusal to lash out at them through all the torture and the torment and the mocking. They were shocked by his silence as the nails were driven and the cross was raised. But then Jesus did begin to speak and the words of Christ began to pour out upon them and move deeply into their souls and cause them to wonder even more, who is this man? From the very beginning, as they had raised the cross and it had dropped into the the hole and the torment had begun, they heard him say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That was directed at these men, the crucifiers of the Christ. They'd never heard any crucified man utter that over them. Perhaps the centurion, in shocked amazement, might have, in his own mind, thought, What? Forgive us? Sometime later, they would watch as one thief began to soften in his heart and began to understand the nature of what he was facing. And he began to speak with Jesus about a coming kingdom. And they were shocked when they heard Jesus look at this man and say, Today you will be with me in paradise. The centurion must have thought, How could that be possible? And who is he to say it? The moments passed. A young man brought a woman weeping to the foot of the cross whom they heard from the rustle of the crowd and the rumors was that this was the mother of Christ, the mother of Yeshua. 
And they heard him speak to her in the midst of his agony, pressing up on the nails to catch a breath, blood streaming like rivers. He gazed down at her, and they heard him say, Woman, behold your son, glancing at John, and trusting his mother into the care of this young man, and looking at the young man and saying, Behold your mother. And the centurion must have been stunned at the fact that this man, in the midst of all of his agony and all of the fearful death to come and all that was yet to be suffered, would not think of himself, but would think of his mother and would, in the ultimate act of human love, care for her and make sure that she would never be alone. It was a stunning moment of many. The centurion must have thought in his mind, who is this man? And how can he do that? And then the world went dark. We step into what he not only saw or who he saw, a miraculous man. Now we step into the text itself and we begin to see what he experienced. What he experienced shortly after that were three miraculous hours overwhelming and powerful and terrifying and in the end revealing. Let's go to the text that I read to you now. The text covers three miraculous hours in which four miracles fell on that place of the planet. And the centurion was there standing in the midst of it all with his soldiers. The centurion's world altered in those moments. Everything changed around him as these miracles descended Let's look at the the four miracles. The text says in verse 45, Now from the sixth hour, which was noon, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon. Darkness simply descended. It didn't creep up. It didn't gradually gather. It didn't sweep in degrees like an eclipse and then go away after a few moments. No, It fell, and it was thick darkness, total darkness. It covered the entire region of that time, so much so that Tertullian and the ancient historian records that for up to 300 years after that, in the archives in the capital of Rome, there was a record by Roman historians of the darkness that covered the region of Judea at that time. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not telling you a religious story. I am reciting to you a real event. Don't you ever forget it. He was a real Savior who died in real time, having entered real history, and there were real witnesses. And this darkness really came. The darkness fell. Now, why did the darkness fall? Darkness in the Scriptures is almost universally a symbol of judgment, of the wrath of God. Why was the darkness over the cross for those three hours? It was not to hide the pain of the sun, S-O-N. It was because it was a symbol that the Father's judgment, the darkness of his judgment was falling on his son. It meant that the Father's judgment fell on Jesus Christ. We know this to be true because in the next verse, verse 46, enduring it toward the end of that sweeping three hours of darkness, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, 
saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus declares what those three hours were all about. They were the time when the wrath of God that was destined for you and for me fell on him and dwelt on him until all the wrath of God for your sin and mine was poured out and extinguished on his son. His son absorbed it all for you and for me. That's why the darkness came. What does that mean for you and I? It means if you and I come to know the Lord Jesus, that God's judgment will not fall on us. What a blessed truth this is. The scripture says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he, the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Oh, there was a world and eternally altering miracle going on in those three hours. The first miracle, the darkness fell. The second miracle then emerged on its heels, and that's in verse 50. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What is this referring to? It describes the curtain in the temple in Jerusalem. There were three different portions to the temple. An open area where people gathered. Then there was the, the holy place where the priests only were allowed to go and, and bring, off, bring uh, service to God. But then there was the place called the Holy of Holies, which was separated from everyone. Only the high priest could go there once a year and bring blood and put it on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant as a covering for the unintentional sins of the people for that year. Only one person, only one high priest could come once a year. It was that holy a place. And to emphasize the holiness of God and our sinfulness, a a curtain covered the entrance. It was one piece. It didn't have a little split in the middle where you could part and move your way in. It was one piece. So when the high priest entered, he had to walk all the way to the end of it and walk around it. It was solid. It was 20 feet high. It was 30 feet wide. And it was woven solidly, the the, the sources tell us, in the thickness of a man's hand. Impenetrable. And that curtain was a sign to all the Jews and to all humanity that we are sinful and we are separated from the most holy God. And there must be a sacrifice of blood. That sacrifice was made day in and day out and year in and year out in Jerusalem. But at that moment, at 3 p.m., the very hour when the high priest was going to take the blood of the Passover lamb, And offer it to God, Jesus Christ gave up his spirit. And when he did, his sacrifice was accepted by the Father. And the Father tore that curtain from top to bottom to show everyone for all time that because of the blood of his son's sacrifice, all men and women who see their sin and trust Jesus as Savior will never be separated from a holy God again. Oh, what a mighty story that moment told. Why did God create that miraculous moment? To show you that the perfect sacrifice had been made, Hebrews 9.11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. When? When he ascended into heaven and walked into the very throne room of God the Father, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, human sacrifices, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The redemption of Jesus for you 
was eternally made at that moment. His blood is enough. And you need never be separated from the God of your life if you trust in the blood of Christ. What does that mean for you today? If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you can now enter God's presence boldly. Hebrews 4.16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What a mighty work Jesus wrought that day. The third miracle. The earth quaked. Verse 51, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The Greek says the rocks moved side to side. This was a massive earthquake that brought everything to a stop in Jerusalem and everything to a stop on that hill as the centurion looked up and in the midst of the darkness that had come and then the earth shaking, he was stunned and filled with fear. Why did God cause the earth to shake? Many Bible preachers have had many opinions on this. Here's mine. Often in scripture, earthquakes are brought by God as a sign of deep anger. And I believe he brought an earthquake at the moment his son gave up his spirit. At the moment the creator of the world was separated from his body. And he accepted the agony of death and had shed that precious blood. All of that agony was looked upon by God. And he brought an earthquake to show This is what your redemption took. Heed it. It grieved the father to pour his wrath out on his son. It angered the father that the sin of man required such a price and such a moment. And God expects you to view the sacrifice of his son with the reverence it's due. Don't you ever lessen what Christ did for you or lessen how richly your sin deserved what he got. It was a sign for all time that this is what our redemption took. God said, heed it. So what does that mean for you and I? It means when we look at the work of Christ on that cross, we better remember that our sin cost his son that much, so much. It was the place in eternity and on the planet where the agony of the just for the unjust was suffered as never before. God was speaking. Miracles were reigning. Darkness fell. Judgment had come. The curtain was torn. The way made open for men and women who saw their sin and trusted in this wonderful Christ. The earthquake to show how tremendous a sacrifice it was. And then the fourth miracle, the dead rose, verse 52. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into into the holy city and appeared to many. What a remarkable moment and a remarkable turn of events. Why would God do this? To prove that Christ had conquered death. The moment those tombs were opened, Hell went on notice that the keys of death and hell had been taken by my master at the cross. And that death no longer had any victory over those that would trust this marvelous Savior. Oh, it was a great visible declaration by God that freedom from death was coming. What does that mean to you and I today? 
It means that if you've trusted Jesus Christ, someday Christ will conquer death just for you. You need not fear it. Oh, what mighty moments they were. Darkness fell, the curtain torn, the earth quaked, and the dead rose, and the victory began to move. The earth had changed in those hours, but the world had changed forever. And in that moment, let me draw you back to the life we're looking at. A man's life, I believe, changed forever. Let's look finally then at what this centurion believed. He had beheld for the hours of that day a miraculous man who amazed him. Then he had experienced three miraculous hours of God declaring a mighty work. And now he believed, I, I, I believe as a preacher, that he came to believe in this marvelous Savior, this miraculous Savior. Verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. And we must walk into these moments with an understanding it was a human event. And I give you my best understanding as a pastor of what I believe occurred in that moment. The scripture says they were all filled with awe. The centurion and the four seasoned guards around him in the darkness amongst the earthquake with with the tombs rumbling and opening. And perhaps in that moment they remembered everything that had happened that day. They remembered Pilate declaring this man innocent. They remembered the humility under which he had taken every stroke, every mocking, every pain. They remembered the forgiveness that he had uttered over their lives as the cross was dropped into the hole on the hill. And they remembered the love that he had shown in his darkest hours. And suddenly now darkness had covered them for three solid hours and the rocks were splitting and the earth was swaying. I think what came into their minds at that moment was who is this innocent man and what have we done? What have we done? Now I base this this partly on another account of this in Luke chapter 23. Luke's rendition of this says that Jesus called out with a loud voice, this is Luke 23, 46, and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. You see, the centurion was under this sweeping wave of understanding and conviction. This man was innocent. He was experiencing the conviction of sin. And dear friend, you cannot come to Christ in a truly saving way, unless you understand and experience conviction of sin. That's why I believe these men came to know Christ that day. The first step in salvation is tasting the conviction of your own sin. And their own hands had crucified the wonderful Son of God. So this conviction sweeps over them. The centurion praises God and says, certainly this man was innocent. Now we go further. The next thing he says is truly, this was the Son of God. He goes from conviction to confession. He declares 
But all of this now has caused his mind to see, and under the graciousness, graciousness of the Holy Spirit, God has allowed him to see. Notice three things. When he said it, he says, truly, this was the Son of God immediately after Jesus had called God his Father. And he said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Before that, he had said, it is finished. The wrath is taken. The work is done. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And Jesus, in command of his own life and death, died. Immediately after hearing this, the centurion says, truly, this was the Son of God. He heard Jesus calling God his Father and calling out to God in that eternal moment. And the centurion, I believe, came to believe that that was indeed the Son of God on that cross. The timing of it all just settled in that moment. Notice not only when he said it, but how he said it. He said, truly this was the Son of God. He had passion in his voice. He had conviction and belief in his heart. There was no doubt in his mind that the one who had been crucified before them was the Son of God. And thirdly, notice who joined him. Look at this, you may miss it. You see, all of the soldiers, it appears, came to this belief in that moment. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe, and they said, truly, this was the Son of God. What a moment of declaration and belief. Here were men declaring Jesus to be God's Son and having fully seen the crucifixion and the agony he had suffered for them. And so the question comes, was this saving faith for them? Can someone say with certainty? Well, only they can. (laughs) But I tend to believe it was saving faith for them. I tend to believe it. You see, if Peter, in Matthew 16, when Jesus said, Who do you say that I am? If Peter could say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus would commend him for that great belief, and he would say, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. Isn't salvation a work of God? Doesn't it require the Father showing us our sin and then revealing Christ (laughs) and breaking upon our souls with the faith to see and believe? If that was enough for Jesus to say, Peter, you've experienced a work of God in your heart by my Father, I would say the, same, the centurion saying virtually the same thing. Truly, this was the Son of God. I would say that would be a saving statement. I mean, if, if a thief with a dying request a few hours earlier could be certain of paradise, certainly a soldier with a great and mighty shout of amazement could. I agree with the Bible commentator R.C. Lenski who said, this centurion who became known in church tradition by the name of Longinus comes to faith beneath the dead Savior's cross. Well, if Dr. Lenski's right and if my hunch is correct that this was a moment of mighty saving faith 
for that centurion and the four guards that stood there with him, then I can tell you some things. I can tell you this, that Jesus began to fill his new forever family the moment he died. You think about it. You think about it. The soldiers may have been their very first to believe after the death of Christ. They may have been the first to step into the new age of redeemed men and women that has stretched from that moment at that cross till this night where it's possible for you to come to the same Christ now risen and be saved too. Jesus began to fill his new forever family. The moment he died, oh, he was in command of everything that day. And he went a saving quickly. (laughs) I can also tell you this, that if it's true that these men were swept into the kingdom, that theirs was believing faith, then God the Father answered the final prayer of his son that day. What was the final prayer of Jesus on that cross? Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. He spoke that over the Roman soldiers who had nailed him to the cross and who were gazing up at him. And in that moment, they didn't know what they had done. But in a few short hours, through the miracles and the work of the Spirit and the moment of time, they did know what they had done. And they came to him in faith, in conviction of sin, and calling out to him as the Son of God. And God answered the prayer of the Son, and he truly did forgive them. And they entered into the eternal hope we have. I can also tell you this. That no one has committed so great a sin that they cannot be forgiven forever. If they simply see their sin and see the Son of God for who He is. What He did and what He offers. This is the story of a centurion's faith and it can be the story of your redemption if you don't know Christ tonight and you sense the spirit of God sweeping over your heart with conviction of the sins of your life know that he died on that cross to take the wrath and the darkness for you and that he rose from that tomb three days later to prove that he was victor over your sin and over the death that threatens your life And when he ascended into heaven and walked into the heavenly throne room, his blood can now plead for you. Call out to Jesus, who truly is the Son of God. But you who know him, what does this mean for you? Oh, it means that the death of our Christ was far richer in both agony and majesty than we can ever finish giving him praise for. Tonight, we're going to gather in communion and we're going to lift our grateful hearts to this amazing Son of God. Make this an evening, make this a time when you can prepare your heart and then in the meditation around the bread and the cup, offer to our wonderful Lord deepest thanks you can render.